Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, we're going to talk about the importance of meaningful investment discussions with your board. The investment portfolio has become a more important part of what's going on, and sometimes it can be difficult to explain the complexities of investments in a way that's easily understandable. I'll share with you four investment conversations that will help you communicate better to your board. So let's get started. Well, hello there. Welcome back to another episode of Bond Investment Mentor. I hope that you're doing well. We have wrapped up another quarter for 2022, one quarter to go. Uh, I'm a former track parent as my son was a high school and college sprinter and hurdler. So to use a track phrase, it's the last leg of the race. Here we go. In today's episode, I want to cover ways to manage investment communications with your board of directors. I've spoken with many community bankers over the past few months about this topic. With investments becoming more important in the bigger scheme of things, it's really important to make sure the board knows what's going on and why when it comes to the investment portfolio. However, sometimes that is easier said than done. I know when I first started, these discussions were a challenge for me as well, but I figured out how to improve the process, and I want to share some of that with you today. We're going to cover four investment conversations to have with your board that will help them get up to speed on the portfolio and its major moving parts. We'll also discuss things to prepare for your discussions with them to make the job a little easier for you. In addition, we'll take a look at the bond market's performance last quarter, yet another wild ride. Plus, I want to share some info with you about an interesting study from Moody's Investors, and I have a duration question from a listener that we'll get to as well. Okay, we've got another quarter on the books, and it was more of the same wild ride we've been experiencing since earlier in the year. Let's start with the bond markets, which saw continued selling pressure and higher yields in September. The two- and three-year Treasury rates were about the same at the end of the third quarter at 4.28 and 4.29% respectively. This was an increase of about 75 to 80 basis points in the past month. With the curve inverted, five-year Treasuries ended the month 74 basis points higher at 4.09%, while the seven-year Treasury rate rose by 68 basis points points to 3.99%, just shy of the 4% mark. The benchmark 10-year Treasury wrapped up the quarter at 3.83%, a gain of 63 basis points. It's been a while since we've hit these type of yields in Treasuries. The last time the benchmark 10-year Treasury closed at this level was in early 2010, while we have to go back to the fall of 2007 for the last time that two, three, and five-year Treasuries closed above 4%. I wish I could say things look better on a quarter-over-quarter basis, but 
that's not the case. Compared to where we were at the end of June, the 10-year Treasury is 81 basis points higher, while the 7-year Treasury rose by 91 basis points. Short and intermediate Treasuries saw triple-digit gains in yields, with the 5-year Treasury picking up 105 basis points since the end of the second quarter. Two- and three-year Treasuries rose further, with both yields about 130 basis points higher quarter over quarter. The September sell-off in bonds is only adding to the mark-to-market headaches that many community bankers have faced this year. Depending on the portfolio's makeup and duration, September's rate move alone could equate to an additional 2 to 4% in unrealized losses for the month. In addition to the jump higher in rates, we also saw the yield curve slope invert last quarter. I discussed more about this in the last episode, but to recap, we went from a relatively flat curve as measured by the 2s, 10s treasury spread to one where the difference between short and long-term treasury yields went negative to as much as minus 53 basis points. I know I don't need to tell any of you that it's been an anxiety-ridden ride this year, but I saw a report from John Cantrell over at Truist Securities recently that was interesting. He mentioned that the MOVE Index, M-O-V-E, MOVE Index, which measures bond market volatility and is an indicator of market anxiety, has traded above the 100 level for 147 out of 189 trading days this year. He added that the levels we're seeing recently are close to volatility levels last seen during the height of the pandemic a couple of years ago. If you'd like to see a chart for yourself, you can ask your broker to grab a screenshot of the Move Index on Bloomberg, and they can also pull down historical data for you if you want to dig into the numbers. Okay, now that we've dissected the Treasury markets, let's jump over to the Fed Funds futures market for an update. In the wake of our third 75 basis point rate hike in September, the markets are beginning to understand that Fed Chair Jerome Powell means it when he says they'll do what's necessary to bring inflation under control. At the end of September, Fed Funds Futures indicated a 70 to 75% probability of an additional 75 basis point rate increase when the FOMC meets next in November. After that, the current market consensus is that the Fed may begin to slow the pace of monetary tightening. The outlook for the December meeting is a probability of about 90% for a 50 basis point hike, followed by another 50 basis point increase in February of next year. If those expected moves happen, we're talking a Fed funds rate of 5%. We've got a ways to go until the next FOMC meeting, however, and there's a lot of economic data to digest before then, so it's still a bit of a wait-and-see situation for now. And finally, with mortgage rates continuing to climb, including the 30-year rate breaking above 7% for the first time since December 2000, the prepayment picture can be summed up very easily almost non-existent. With an increasing number of borrowers between 300 and 400 basis points out of the money, the appetite for refi activity is pretty much gone. As a result, mortgage security investors have been focusing on shorter-term structures like 10- and 15-year fixed pools, as well as hybrid arms. The other factor that has always been important, but I think is even more critical now, is understanding the underlying collateral characteristics of any mortgage-backed security. Taking the time to ensure that the loans that you own in MBS pools will go a long way to maintaining a well-behaved investment portfolio, even in conditions like this.
Okay, moving on to other topics. Moody's Investors just published a report on the results of a municipal stress test that I want to share with you. What they did is they ran a stress test scenario on all 50 states to see how the states would do in a moderate recession situation. Specifically, Moody's wanted to know the amount of fiscal stress each state would experience and whether the state had sufficient cash and or reserves to handle it. Overall, the results were good. Moody's found that 39 states would have the resources to weather a moderate recession. The top five on the list of results were North Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, California, and Delaware. Based on the stress test results, four states would have to initiate modest spending cuts or tax increases by less than 5% of their fiscal budgets. Those four states were South Dakota, Kentucky, Rhode Island, and Louisiana. And finally, the Moody's report found that seven states would be required to consider larger spending cuts or tax increases as the hit to their budget would be somewhere between 5 and 10%. The bottom five were Illinois, Alaska, Arizona, Mississippi, and New Hampshire. I find this type of information helpful when I'm evaluating municipal bonds. It's one more piece of the due diligence puzzle, and it may sway my decision on a muni bond investment if I'm comparing two securities with similar characteristics and qualities. This is one of those reports that I like to file away in my due diligence files. If you'd like to take a look at the report or download a copy for yourself, I'll leave a link to the Moody's article and the full report in the episode notes. Finally, I received an investment question from Joe in Texas. He was discussing the duration of investments in his portfolio, and he wanted to know the difference between modified duration and effective duration. This is a great question, and it's important to understand if you're trying to analyze a security or the investment portfolio. While I did more of a deeper dive on duration in episode 10, let's do a quick review. From a portfolio management standpoint, duration measures the price sensitivity of a security or portfolio when interest rates change. The most common duration metric that you'll see on a bond accounting or portfolio analytics report is the modified duration. One of the things that this number represents is the estimated percentage change in value you'd expect to see for a 100 basis point change in interest rates. For example, a modified duration of 5 means that if interest rates moved by 100 basis points, either way, a bond's price or value would change by about 5%. In most cases, modified duration will give you an accurate indication of the security's price sensitivity. But it has one limitation. It's only accurate when you're evaluating a fixed-rate investment. That's because modified duration assumes that the coupon rate is constant over the life of the security. However, if the investment has an interest rate that floats or resets during its lifetime, you'll find that modified duration will overstate the price sensitivity. If you think about it, this makes sense because the variable rate coupon periodically captures the new current market rate, which should reduce the investment sensitivity. To capture the effect of a floating rate for an investment's price sensitivity, we want to use a different duration measure known as the effective duration. The effective duration captures the interest rate adjustments of a variable rate coupon, making it a better sensitivity measure than other duration metrics. For example, 
Let's assume that we have a floating rate SBA pool with a final maturity in seven years. This type of investment has an interest rate that resets quarterly based on the current prime rate. If we were to look at the modified duration, we might find a number like 3.34. But this number does not take into account the fact that the coupon rate on this security reprices quarterly. This is where effective duration comes in. If we calculate the effective duration on this security, including the quarterly reset, we would get an effective duration of about 0.3. This makes more sense since a quarterly or three-month period is 0.25 years. So if you hold variable rate securities in your institution's portfolio, you'll want to check the effective duration instead of the modified duration when analyzing a security prices sensitivity. Thanks a lot for your question, Joe. And if you have an investment or portfolio management question that you'd like me to answer for you, please drop me an email at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com or shoot me a message over on LinkedIn. All right, on to our main topic for today. Over the past year or so, investment portfolios at community financial institutions have become a much bigger focus, particularly for bank and credit union boards. This is understandable, given the growth that has occurred for community financial institution portfolios since the beginning of the pandemic a couple of years ago. Investment portfolios have grown from around 15 to 20 percent of the balance sheet before the pandemic to as much as 20 percent, 30 percent. 40% or more of the balance sheet. In addition, as I mentioned before, we've experienced some extreme conditions over the past couple of years that have created major challenges in managing the investment portfolio. We really have experienced the worst of both worlds. We've gone from seeing rates drop to historic lows back in 2020, along with the prepayment nightmares that accompanied the low rate environment, to witnessing one of the biggest increases in the yield curve in about 40 years. It's because of all these factors that discussions about the investment portfolio have become more prevalent at board meetings. However, when I talk with community bankers, I find that most of these conversations fall into one of two scenarios. The first scenario is one where the board appears to be disinterested, bored, overwhelmed, or some combination of all of those. I was talking with one community banker recently about this, and they said, as soon as I open my mouth about the investment portfolio, most of the board's eyes glaze over, even though it makes up about 50% of our total assets. I feel it's information overload, and some of the important things get lost in there. That's one scenario. The second scenario occurs when one or more board members latch on to a particular topic or specific metric in a report and hold on to it for dear life. The next thing you know, you've gone down the rabbit hole on a topic that doesn't necessarily warrant the amount of conversation that ends up happening. Does either or both of these situations sound familiar to you? If so, you are not alone. I've talked with many community bankers who have found themselves struggling to have meaningful conversations with their boards about something that has become a much more important part of managing the institution's balance sheet. But one thing to keep in mind in the situation is thinking about things from the board member's perspective. First, these are people that are not involved in the day-to-day at the bank or credit union. 
They need to have a working knowledge of what's going on, but they're not necessarily going to be deep diving into any given topic, including the investment portfolio. Sometimes it can be difficult to understand the complexities of the portfolio and the fixed income markets, especially if they aren't involved with it regularly. A second thing to keep in mind is that for many of these board members, their main information source is the financial media. Given the nature of the way stories are covered there, they may only be getting a partial picture of what's happening and how it affects your institution's investment portfolio. And the third thing is that your board members may not understand the difference between a retail investor's portfolio and a bank or credit union investment portfolio. Both of these portfolios have different objectives, philosophies, and approaches, but your board may not fully understand that. What I want to share with you today are four types of investment conversations for you to have with your board. In having these conversations, you'll make it easier for your board to understand what's going on within the investment portfolio, make it easier for you to prepare helpful information for the board meeting or package, and create the potential for meaningful conversations with the board about an increasingly important part of the balance sheet. Some of these may be part of a training and education session for the board, while others of these conversations are part of what I would call a regular ongoing dialogue at each meeting. The first conversation is discussing the role of the investment portfolio for a community financial institution. In addition to being a tool to help with earnings, especially if loan demand is weak, help the board to understand how the portfolio plays a role in managing things like liquidity and interest rate risk. It's worth periodically reviewing these concepts with them to remind them of how the investment portfolio is involved. But it's not just about risk management. If your institution's portfolio plays additional roles, such as collateral and pledging or tax or capital management, spend time sharing that with them as well. It's also essential to help the board understand how the investment portfolio is an important strategic planning tool for managing the balance sheet and the institution's financial objectives. So that's conversation number one. The second conversation with your board concerns some of the key fundamentals that drive management of the investment portfolio. I have four topics that I think are important to discuss with them, and learning them will help the board better understand the reports and information that they see each month. The first fundamental topic to help the board understand is that fixed income investments in the portfolio are almost the same as the loans on the balance sheet, which they may have more familiarity with. If you compare the two, they have many of the same characteristics, such as their payment structure, rate formulas, terms and covenants, and and things like that. The one noteworthy difference is that investments are subject to accounting rules requiring monthly mark-to-market, while loans are not. This is the reason why community financial institutions have experienced the unrealized losses that they have on the books. If you want to dive deeper into this topic, please check out episode 14, where I cover AOCI and unrealized losses. The second fundamental topic to discuss with the board is about what a bond's price represents. Help them understand that a bond is nothing more than a series of principal and interest cash flows, and then explain how the price represents the present value of those cash flows compared to what the market is currently offering. You might share an example where they have a choice of investing in three securities. The first one has an interest rate that's in line with the markets, and it trades at its face value, or par. 
Then show them a second security with an interest rate that is higher than the current market rate. Ask them which investment they'd prefer and follow up by asking if they'd be willing to pay a price above the face value or a premium to get the better interest payments. And then you present a third security with an interest rate that's below the current market rate. Ask them if they'd be interested in that. If not, would they be willing to invest if the price was reduced? Through these examples, you can begin to help them understand how a bond's price is driven by current market conditions and how the premium or discount price is based on the relative value of the interest cash flows in the investment. A third fundamental topic to discuss with the board is the concept of yield. Explain how yield represents the income return an investor earns based on current market conditions. You can tie in the relative price exercise that we just discussed earlier. More important is helping the board understand the inverse relationship between yield and price, where price goes down when interest rates rise and price goes up when interest rates fall. And the fourth fundamental topic to discuss is duration, helping the board understand that duration is a price sensitivity measurement and how you can use that measurement to estimate the change in a portfolio's value will help them to better understand how the portfolio reacts to changes in interest rates, especially when the markets get choppy. So that's our second conversation. It's all about the fundamentals. The third conversation I recommend ties back to the regular information that you are providing the board, and that is discussing relevant market conditions. The key term here is relevant. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about the market conditions that directly affect your institution's balance sheet and its performance. For example, let's talk about yield curves. When it comes to yield curves, the most important thing for the board to understand is the concept of yield curve slope. That's because the yield curve slope is a primary driver of financial performance for community banks. When I was working for my bank, I used to tell my CFO that it was less about how interest rates change and more about how the yield curve slope changes. I would say to him, if you tell me how the slope flattens or steepens in the coming year, I can tell you how easy or difficult it will be to hit our financial objectives. In addition to understanding the difference between steep, flat, and inverted yield curves, It's good to teach your board how a combination of Fed monetary policy, inflation expectations, and market technical conditions are the primary drivers for how the yield curve behaves. In addition, help your board understand what part of the yield curve is important. Show the board where the different parts of your institution's balance sheet, assets, and liabilities reside on the yield curve. For example, if all you are originating for loans are five to seven year final maturities, and you're not buying any long investments, there's no need to spend a lot of time discussing what the 10-year treasury is doing. In terms of sharing yield curve information with the board, one resource I recommend is Bloomberg's Treasury Yield Curve Screens. With them, you can easily show current and historical yield curves, giving the board an easy way to see and understand what's going on. Another source of information that's worth sharing is the Fed Fund's futures market, which can provide insight into the market outlook for Fed policy action. I like using Bloomberg's WERP screen to get the information I need. I don't always share the screen itself, but I do use it to prepare information on the probability for upcoming FOMC meetings. I went into more detail about Fed Fund's futures in episode 16, if you're interested in learning more about those and the WERP screen.
And that brings us to investment conversation number four, which is regular investment updates and strategies. When I was preparing reports for my bank board, I like to pull together several items. The first was a summary report of the portfolio and its positions. What's important here is to limit what I call the deep dive. The last thing you want to do is serve up a mere 150-page report for the board to review. Talk about an eye-glazing moment. You'll want to find that happy medium between too much and too little information. It may take some time to find the right balance, but I assure you it is worth the effort. You'll also want to include recent investment transactions and any policy exceptions. When you do this, take a little time to provide highlights of useful information to help the board understand how these pieces fit into the bigger picture. One question that I've frequently received is about using peer reports. These are usually provided by brokers showing how the institution's portfolio compares to other bank or credit union portfolios. Are they helpful? They can provide value, but one thing I do want to point out is that a peer report is only a snapshot of how your portfolio compares to those of other broker clients. I had a conversation once with one community banker who told me that their peer reports looked very good until they switched to a different broker for their reporting, and all of a sudden, the portfolio looked way out of line with its peers. Was it something that the bank had done? Nope. It was only because the peer group had changed. It's just something to keep in mind as you consider using peer reports. In addition to report items, what are the topics you'll want to regularly discuss with the board? Well, first, you'll want to point out any changes since the last report, whether that's due to purchase or sales activity, changes in market conditions, or something else related. It's also good to spend a little time discussing how the fundamental metrics like yield and duration may have changed and why it happened. This builds on the fundamental training that you provided the board. In addition to portfolio-level data, it's good to spend time discussing any noteworthy security-level items of interest. You don't have to review the portfolio line item by line item, but highlight any circumstances about specific holdings that will help them understand a little more about what's going on under the hood. And finally, share any investment strategies that are being considered or implementing. In doing that, I like to follow what I call the four questions framework. I discussed this in more detail way back in episode four, but when you are presenting an investment strategy, you want to be able to answer the following four questions. One, what are we doing? Two, why are we doing it? Three, how can it go wrong? And four, what will we do if it does? Answering these four questions as you discuss investment strategies ensures that you are covering the key areas the board needs to know, the strategy, the rationale behind it, the inherent risks, and the contingencies. Those are the four conversations that form the cornerstones to helping your board gain a deeper understanding of the investment portfolio and its management. To recap, they are one, the role of the investment portfolio, two, key fundamental investment concepts, three, relevant market information, and four, investment updates and strategies. By having these four conversations with your board, you'll make it easier for them to engage in a good dialogue with you about an important part of managing your institution's balance sheet. As always, if you have any questions on what we've covered here in this topic, please reach out to me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com or message me over on LinkedIn. 
Before we wrap for today, I want to share one last thing with you. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know how important I think investment education and training is for community bankers. Whether it's through training, either online or in person, or mentoring in a one-on-one or group setting, my mission is to take the things that I learned over the past three decades and pass them along to help community bankers become better investment portfolio managers. I know that managing an investment portfolio can feel overwhelming at times, particularly this year. I've had community bankers tell me how the last two years have made them a little more anxious about their institution's investment portfolio, whether it's because it's become a larger part of the balance sheet or market conditions have them paralyzed or second-guessing what to do, they're looking for resources to help them boost their investment management skills. And maybe this is where you find yourself as well. I know that what we've experienced could make you doubt that it's difficult, at best, to pull off managing investments without a lot of stress and frustration. It can feel difficult trying to find the right resources that are objective and easy to understand. But I also know that with a little effort and someone to guide you, you can learn and master the core concepts to build investment strategies, analyze investment securities, have meaningful working relationships with your brokers, and share investment information confidently with your bank or credit union's management, board, auditors, and regulators. I know this because I've been there. That's why I've been pouring my efforts into creating online courses that will help you gain a leg up in your investment skills. As I've mentioned before, I partnered with the Graduate School of Banking at Colorado to create the Bond Basics course, which provides you the foundational concepts of fixed income securities and portfolio management for community financial institutions. If you're ready to lock down the fundamentals and begin taking your investment skills to the next level, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash bondbasics for more info and to sign up. Plus, when you register through the link I just mentioned, you'll receive a complimentary 60-minute one-on-one mentoring session with me as a free bonus. It's your chance to discuss your investment and finance questions with someone who's walked the path before. So if you're ready to do this, go to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash bondbasics to get started today. In addition, I have some other great news. I'm excited to let you know that I'm putting the finishing touches on a couple other online investment courses. My second course, Investing in Government Bonds, is almost ready. It will provide the online training you need to learn about using government securities in your institution's portfolio and how to analyze them. And the third course, Investing in Mortgage-Backed Securities, will introduce you to the key concepts of residential mortgage securities and how to analyze them for your institution's investment portfolio. I'll have more information on both of these courses real soon, but if you're interested in learning more and getting an early heads up when the courses are released, just shoot me an email at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com or message me on LinkedIn and I'll make sure to keep you in the loop. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, and I hope that you found this information helpful. If you know someone that might benefit from what we covered today, please share it. We need to get as many community bankers moving in the right direction in the world of investments. If this was your first time stopping by to listen, thanks so much for checking us out. And if this is a return visit for you, I appreciate you coming back and checking in. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson. The information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself, and any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice.
As I said before, if you have any questions regarding anything I covered today, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. I'd love to catch up with you. And if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on any of the major platforms or through whatever podcast app that you use. And hey, if you like what you hear, would you please consider leaving a rating or review? It does help others discover and learn more about the podcast. If you're looking for more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, stop by the website, bondinvestmentmentor.com. Over there, you'll find tips, articles, and resources to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio. And you can download one of my free investment guides and learn about how I can help you become stronger as a community bank investment portfolio manager. And finally, let's connect online. You can connect with me on LinkedIn at Christopher Nelson CFA or on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. I would love to catch up with you and see what's going on in your world. I look forward to talking with you again real soon. Thanks for stopping by. Have a good one.